everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, a Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it gives me so much pride and pleasure to introduce our next guest to you, Porig Okeji. Porig is an amazing human being and individual, and we only had a chance to share even a small sliver of his story today. He is from Ireland, where he recently served as a senator and was the first independent senator to champion a bill from writing the bill to getting it passed in the country's history. Prior to that, he was a serial serial entrepreneur. He owned multiple airlines, among other businesses. He was Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year for Ireland. He then went on to serve as a committee member for Ernst & Young to help select Entrepreneurs of the Year. He's heavily involved in a leadership role with the Young Presidents Organization internationally. He's been a school teacher, a professor. He's a family man. He is somebody who consistently avails himself to others. He has accumulated and shares wisdom in a way that is so uncommon and so unique and so valuable. And he has had such an incredible impact on my life. I literally wouldn't be where I am today without the time that he chose to invest in me. I am so grateful for Porig and so happy to have the opportunity to share some of his story and his perspective with you. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. His perspective on running an organization is so unique and so valuable in the way he listens to and gathers ideas and insight from other people and shares that wisdom. It's truly amazing. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Before we jump into it, we got to thank our sponsors, of course, Humantel. Head over to humantel.com for industry-leading training on how to accurately understand where people's emotions are changing by evaluating their facial expressions and nonverbal behavior. I can vouch for the training. I've taken it all myself. They do amazing work over there. And when you go, please enter the code INQUASIVE25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E, two for 25% off of all of their online training. Also, thank you to Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Head over to ei-magazine.com to experience their amazing library of emotional intelligence content from articles to videos to podcasts to educational events to training. They have so much going on there. Please go check them out. And for all the professional investigators who are watching, please check out certifiedinterviewer.com. Com. That's for the International Association of Interviewers to check out all of their resources and benefits for joining the International Association of Interviewers, from the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation to their educational events, to their legal updates, to all of their member benefits, just the interaction between members. They have so much going on there, and they're solely dedicated to developing and maintaining elite interrogators who are focused on conducting morally, legally, and ethically successful conversations in any context. So thank you very much to our sponsors. Now, Finally, without further ado, I introduce to you, Porig Okeji. Hello, Porig. It is so great to see you. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Oh, Mike, it's a huge pleasure. It's a privilege to be with you and to see you today. It's, it's really good. It's been a few years. It's been too many years, for yeah, sure. Uh, and as the conversation starts, people will obviously get a very idea of a very great idea of who you are and your philosophy and your leadership style and where you've been and, and what you've learned. But really from the start, and I know I told you this before we went live, 
although we haven't spent a whole lot of time together, the time we have spent together has been so impactful. And I'm so grateful for all that you shared with me. And really, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for some of the conversations we had in Dublin. So I can't thank you enough for taking a little bit of time to share some of that with the rest of our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. One thing I'd say about that, Mike, energy flows both ways. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So there's so much we can talk about from your upbringing to your family, to your business career. But I think a really interesting place to start will be the fact that you were a senator in Ireland, which when we first met, you weren't. I remember having a couple of conversations in your car that it had piqued your interest and you'd had some conversations, but you hadn't you hadn't taken that leap yet. So I'm curious, considering your family background, which you share with me and all your success in business, what motivated you to make the jump into politics? Oh, my God. Uh, be very brief on it. Uh, one day I was having coffee with a friend and I got a phone call. And in Ireland, the prime minister can actually select 11 senators. So the prime minister in Dikini, uh at the time uh, they try and select people who they believe are of senator caliber that can bring an extra dimension to politics, a little bit outside of the, the norm, outside of the box thinking. So he asked me would I be willing to be a senator because of my entrepreneurial and business background and, and also probably where I came from and so on, but primarily from an entrepreneurial and a business point of view and to bring an infusion of that type of thinking, that type of acting and so on into debates and into the Senate and into the Irish Parliament, which is, I hope I tried to do. What a great answer. I decided to become a politician when the prime minister called me and (laughs) asked me to do it. (laughs) Well, that's basically it. Yeah, that's it. That's, That's a great story. So I know you spent a lot of time and you were a part of many different conversations and, as you said, debates and negotiations and things, and and certainly not looking to peek any further behind the curtain than is appropriate. But I do recall you working very hard to get a perjury bill passed, if I have that correct. So what I would love to hear a little bit about, especially, as you said, considering your entrepreneurial experience, what did you learn or experience about the negotiation and persuasion process as you were working so hard to get that bill passed? Yeah, uh, it was very interesting, just totally different to any experience I've had in business or outside of parliamentary life. First of all, the starting point is the purpose. What is your purpose? Why? And for me, there was no legislation in Ireland on perjury. Therefore, our insurance claims were going up and up and up. People could go into court. They can, in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases, tell lies. The court discovers, the judge discovers that they're telling lies and they'll walk away. And they can go into another court and claim something else. And that's making insurance much more expensive, much more difficult for companies like companies I, I was involved in. So the why was my passion. The passion was to introduce legislation on perjury to actually uncontaminate the law of evidence so that somebody tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help them God. So this perjury bill did that. So when I had that deep purpose, created that deep purpose, 
it gave me a sense to actually convince politicians. I was an independent uh, polit politician. I was not a member of any political party. And as you know, and, and, and viewers know, it's, it's a numbers game. The more people who vote one way, the better chance you have of something succeeding. I didn't have any, didn't have anybody watching my back. So I had to actually persuade politicians to accept it. So the purpose was the first thing. The second thing was I wanted to make sure that I drafted the bill very professionally. So there were over 100 pieces of older legislation in the country going back over 100 years that we had to amend and change so that it synchronized into the legislation we were creating. So then they realized this guy knows what he's talking about. He's coming from a background. This is the purpose of it. And he has created a pretty professional piece of legislation because they get their own lawyers and their own barristers to actually read through it and to pick holes in it as much as they can. So when they get their independent verification feedback and they see that you're coming from a place of integrity, I was not trying to use the uh, bill to actually garnish more votes for myself or anything like that. The purpose was not me. It was actually to achieve something. When they understood that and accepted that, it made it a lot, lot, lot easier. So every single politician from every side of the aisle actually supported the bill and the legislation. That's amazing. Mm. An independent politician shows up and gains unanimous support from all the party-aligned politicians on a bill. Exactly. This is the first time in the history of our state that an independent senator brought a bill all the way through to it being legislation and now a law of the land. So now there has been prosecutions in Ireland for people going into court and making false claims and knowing that they're false. And there be, some people have got a couple of years in prison for it. Others have been fined 20, 30, 50, 100,000 euros, for example, in some cases. So now it is, it is law. Um, it's not, to be honest with you, it's not about, how will I put it? Um, it's not about me. My name isn't, yeah, if you Google it, you'll see my name on it and so on. But a, a judge doesn't say, hey, this guy introduced this legislation. It's not about that. It's about the legislation itself. Uh, but from a personal point of view, you know, Mike, it's so important, anything you do in life, that you give it your best shot. And you give it your best shot and you come from a, let's call it a clean space. You don't have any hidden agendas other than what you see is what you get. And when you do that, you can cut through a lot of bullshit and stuff like that. So you can, And people, people will get to see that and understand that uh, over time. And that helps, that actually reduces the barriers people create to block uh, good information coming into them. So that's, that's, that's basically it. But look at it, 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 it's not about me, it's about the legislation. And we got it, and, and I'm delighted with that. And whether I'm associated with it or not is quite irrelevant. And, and I just, having spent time with you, completely believe that. As I think back to the pieces of the story as you were sharing it, so much of that aligns with, in my previous career, what it takes to encourage people to tell the truth in an investigative interview. And in my current career, and as you know, creating business deals, you come in 
with a transparent, authentic approach. So it's easy to build rapport and understand where you're coming from. You worked hard to build credibility in yourself and in the bill with all of the research and the professional packaging. You sought the opinion and input from all sides and then presented it in a way where it was kind of neutral down the middle. This is the benefit. This is what we're looking and created that buy-in along the way. And for me, that's just so refreshing to hear. I mean, I can only speak for here in the United States, of course, but it's very rare that you hear positive news coming from the political realm. And I don't know in my entire life that we've heard a unanimous agreement on anything. You know, there's usually one holdout somewhere for some reason. So kudos to you. Congratulations for all the hard work, especially being the first independent senator in order to push that all the way through from start to finish. So job very well done. And of course, emblematic of success you've really experienced throughout your career. Well, yeah, I've had some success, Mike, but I've also had some some failures and, and a number of failures. And that's fine. And I think it's so important that we, uh, how do I put it? Yeah, we share our successes, but we don't, we don't fear our failures. We don't run away from our failures. Our, fa- our failures are, as is often says, it's a reflection, it's a learning point. But it's so important. Sometimes it took me a long time to understand and see the importance of failure. And when failure happens, what I felt, first of all, uh, and we might talk about it in a while, the airline I had, that got into trouble and uh, during the recession and, and financial difficulties and the banking crisis and, and all of that type of thing and uh, volcanic ash in, in Iceland and various things like that. But actually, I thought for a while, and this is a challenge to anybody and everybody who's watching this, that if the airline fails, well, I'm a failure. That could be further, nothing could be further from the truth. You are not your business. If you make yourself your business, then you're actually enveloping or taking the, those vapors in in relation to that business. There's more to you than a business. That's so important. You're a different entity, different legal breathing entity to your business. So that if your business fails, that's okay. And the question I asked myself at one stage, okay, Porik, now you have fallen off the horse. What do you do? You could line them up and start feeling sorry for yourself. Or you could ask yourself the question, okay, how long is it going to take me to get back up on the horse again? And that's a measure of the woman or the man or the person in relation to resilience. How long will it take me to get back up on the horse again? You brought up the airline, uh, which I did have the opportunity to fly on once. You were extremely gracious. I believe it was the first time we actually worked together. That's right. Yeah, I had the opportunity to meet you in Galway, fly out to the Aran Islands and back. And then we commuted over to Dublin together. And I will say this, actually two things. Number one, I got bumped off my first flight back, honestly, because I had like a week's worth of luggage on the little plane to get back from (laughs) the Aran Islands. So I understood that. But they were going to bump me off the second one. And I knew you were waiting for me. And I tried to very politely tell the people that, you know, I had a ride waiting for me. I had a commitment in Dublin I needed to get to. And finally, sarcastically, one of the people asked me who I was meeting. And I very calmly said your name. And as soon as I did, I found myself sitting next to the pilot on the flight back. 
So they found room for me in my bags on the next plane, which I appreciate. I didn't want to do it, but it worked out. But I'll, you taught your pilot taught me my my most like visceral lesson in staying calm because coming back into Galway, that airport is on a hill. So you come in and you actually landing going up this little hill when you get there. And because of the wind, the plane wasn't coming in straight. It was coming in at an yeah. angle. Yeah. And I'm sitting there next to the pilot and my rational brain is telling myself, he has this under control. Just relax. It's fine. He does this every day. And my emotional brain is like, tell him he's crooked. Tell him he's crooked. Tell him he has to straighten it out. And then, you know, sure enough, right as we're about to hit the ground, he just straightens that and rolls us up the hill. And, and for me, that's actually one of those things when I think about staying calm. That's one of those pieces that I look back on or experiences that I look back on to help me stay calm. Um but I, when all of those things were happening with the airline, and those aren't small things, you kind of brushed over them, the banking crisis and the recession and an enormous volcano erupting, which is shutting down all transatlantic air travel. And I believe the jet stream was blowing the ash directly over Ireland, which was making it even worse because so much, and I'm being selfish here, because so much of what I do focuses on communication and listening what did you learn from a communication standpoint from working with your leadership team and even down to your employees on getting up out of the muck and working through that together to come out successfully on the other side? Um, yeah, there are a number of things in relation to that, Mike. And it wasn't just starting when the volcanic ash and recession happened. you got to believe in your team and your team's got to believe in you. And you actually start... And you start creating a culture. But in actual fact, it pretty quickly, it moves from being your culture as leader, the team culture. So the team are protecting the culture. And they want to survive and grow because they've got, they've got not only do they have a financial interest and a salary in it, but they have a personal passionate interest. They've got an emotional interest because they've bought in emotionally into the business and what we're about. And that's why in, in some cases, and certainly in our company, when things got really tough, people would call up and say, I don't need a salary this month. I can keep going. Or I can go on a half salary this month because I believe in what we're doing here because we're all in here together. So that was, that was the, the single biggest thing. The biggest problem I had, quite frankly, with my staff is to tell them to go home, not to tell them to come into work. That was the biggest problem. Like one year, this way I can give you an example on it. One year, uh, two guys from EY, Ernst & Young, called to me at Dublin Airport, wanted to meet me. I met them in a hotel, airport hotel. And then they wanted to go down and see my office. And I told them, well, I don't have an office. And they said, well, where does your staff? Oh, I said, we've got porta cabins in a, in a disused car park. That's what we use. But I don't have an office there. Can we go down and see it? I said, fine. So I brought them around. I said, how come you don't have an office? You own the company. You're the CEO. I says, I'm the least important person in this company that needs an office. I'm not able to make an airplane fly. I'm not able to fix an airplane. All I can do is create the environment for those people to actually grow and build an airline. And one year, when these guys came down, I didn't know what they wanted. 
But a couple of weeks afterwards, they contacted me and they said, you've been nominated for one of the 24 finalists for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. Mike, to tell you the truth, I could hardly pronounce entrepreneur, never mind spell it. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. So we went up to the event, a big gala event in Dublin, and my name was announced. I'm Ireland's Entrepreneur of the Year, representing the World Entrepreneur of the Year in Monaco against 140 countries or whatever. So my wife and children, I brought them out with me. Not only that, but I filled a 70-seater airplane with my staff, and they came out. And anybody who knows Monte Carlo, there's two Irish pubs there. And they, they, we were in one of them. I think the other one closed down because they were fed up with the paddies coming and going. And the Australians and South Africans and Americans, they all want to say, where are the Irish tonight? So uh, we, had, we had a great night. But afterwards, I didn't win the World Entrepreneur of the Year, but a fellow called Greg Erickson, great guy, he was in charge of the EY World event. And he said to me, Porig, yeah, we've seen people come with their partners. They've come with their spouses, and not many have come with their families, if you have. But you brought a plane load of staff with you. And I said, Greg, if you gave me that trophy and said, Porig, you're World Entrepreneur of the Year, but you cannot bring your staff with you. I said, Greg, and this is not being disrespectful. I wouldn't be here today without my staff. So there's no point in me collecting a trophy for the company because I'm not, I'm not the person who actually made it happen. So I'm not. There are plenty of, there's a guy called uh, Tom Colgan. He, he became my chief engineer. He retired from Aer Lingus. And he said to me, he was retiring a second time from us. And we were on a Friday night in the pub having some Guinness up at Dublin Airport. And he turned around to me and he says, Porik, uh, I really enjoyed the last two and a half, three years working in Air Ireland with you. It didn't work for me with me. And I said, how do you mean? He says, well, I was 31 years or something in Aer Lingus and we're fixing airplanes. When I was with you for two and a half years, we're building an airline. That's kind of where it comes from. There's nothing I could add to that illustration. I know that you do a lot of investing and you do a lot of advising and coaching as well. I'm assuming beyond Ireland, but especially in Ireland with entrepreneurs and, and up and coming businesses. I know just a little bit about your background and your roots and how that has carried your humility. And you, you've shared stories with me in the past. As I continue to work with CEOs globally, I find some that appear to be on that end of the scale. And I find quite a few that are, that are kind of in the middle. You know, they certainly focus on their achievements and what they've done, but they haven't entirely forgot who has helped get them there and their appreciation for that. But I've also met others that appear to have kind of lost touch with their roots and really focus on where they are now and, and don't really share that same perspective. I'm curious, when you are coaching entrepreneurs, how do you speak with them or how do you coach them to try to maintain at least a similar mindset and appreciation for their team as you have? Yeah, I think... That's a really, really good question. I think the starting point is to get to know yourself, who you are as a person. What motivates you? What do you like? What do you not like? What's working for you? What isn't? And if you do 
very, very briefly on the back of a page, blank sheet. And if you join the dots between the ages of 10 and 15, every five years up to now, and plus five means it's brilliant, minus five, you want to forget about it. And if you look at what were the various events that happened when life was really good and the events that happened when life wasn't, you'll see trends there. And quite frankly, a key part of those trends are the people that were with you at the time that give you energy rather than take energy from you. So I would kind of, I'd start with that. Like I mentioned, mentioned uh, George Kohlreiser before and, and uh, George talks about your secure base and your secure base is hugely important. And your secure base, my, your secure base and my secure base when we're 20 years old is different to what it is today. There are people in it today that weren't in it then. And that's fine because secure base changes and it, it develops. And about 70 to 80% of your secure base are the people that are in it. So if you don't mind, let's do an exercise with everybody who's watching. I, I think I think in pictures, Mike. I can't I can't help it. And this has got to do with mentoring and coaching and that. So I'm I'm asking all of us just to in your mind draw a circle. Call that circle your secure base. And right in the middle of that circle, put the initials of the people who mean most to you, that are most important to you in your life. And as you go out to the edge of the circle, put the initials of others who you interact with quite frequently, but are not really at the core. And ask yourself the question then for each of those, do a little bit of an audit. Do they give you energy or do they take energy from you? Because sometimes there are people in that circle that maybe destabilize it. And sometimes there are people who are not in it or possibly should be in it. And that's a time for you to reach out. Sometimes, sometimes we move away from family or sometimes we move away from old friends, but they're still a really, really important part of your secure base. They just make a difference to you in your life. So if everybody does that, and then if you'd say, so what's your purpose? I remember a long time ago, I went and I did a postgrad in Harvard called OPM. It was a really brilliant program, owners, president, managers. And a lady called Cynthia Montgomery, one of the finest professors I've ever met in my life, she talked about strategy. And she was talking about your business, strategy in your business. So what makes a good strategy? And um, we all had all lot of different ideas and thoughts. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, what makes a good strategy is ask yourself the question about your business. What is the word with you versus the word without you? And that's part, that's really your purpose. If you ask that question, start digging down. What is the word? Do you make any difference? Does it make any difference that you actually came on this earth and walked on this earth and speak and spoke and listened and whatever? And I mean a positive difference. And I, when I, you mentioned when I was a senator there, when I was a senator I, I, in my office, I had a big white board. And in permanent ink, my PA and my secretary wrote in it in big black letters, the word with you versus the word without you. And then I did not go back. I gave it my four, four and a half years. So I didn't go back to be a senator. I could have. Mm. 
well, made an effort to go back. I didn't. But somebody who got my office afterwards phoned me up and he says, what's this crazy sentence written up on the, on the wall? I said, what sentence? The world with you versus the world without you. I cannot rub it off. I cannot delete it. I said, it's not for deleting. Shane, what was his name? Great guy. I said, Shane, leave that there because you look at what the world is without you versus the world without you, with you versus without you. And for whatever number of years you're a senator in that office, you're going to see that every day, every morning, every evening, when you just when you leave the office. And ask yourself, what difference are you making? So that is down to purpose. So in mentoring Olympic athletes and international players, that's where I'm coming from, the depth of it. And actually, I'm, I'm passionate about rugby. And uh, La Rochelle, great French rugby team, were playing in the European Cup final last Saturday against Leinster uh, in, in Dublin. And La Rochelle won by one point. And afterwards, the manager of La Rochelle, which is probably is one of Ireland's greatest rugby players, guy called Gara, did an interview. And he said, look at he says, we had photographs of the people who mean most to us in life in the dressing room. That's a secure base. So when the going gets tough, you just think of that. You think of that relationship. You think of those people who helped you get to where you're at in life. Because it was never about you anyway. Actually, you know what I'd love to do? This is really yes. jumping out. Maybe I'm talking too much. Can I read out a poem? Please. If that's okay. It was not written by me. Written by uh, Mother Teresa, uh, who passed away a number of years ago. But I think it's really good. And it's kind of a little bit to the point. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. And like, if you're successful, you'll win some false friends and some true enemies. Mike, be successful anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. But you spend years spend, uh, building. Someone could destroy you overnight, but build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. Because the good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. But give the best you've got anyway. Because you see, in the final analysis between you and God, it was never between you and them anyway. Thank you. And by the way, that we didn't prepare that. That wasn't scripted. You had that on your desk and just decided to, exactly. to share. With I just us. decided to. I, I looked for it there when I was answering your last question, and I I I found it because I've I've got it on my I've got it on my phone. And I, I love the line that you said that the trigger the setup for it. It was never about you anyway. Like what, no, exactly. what is it about? What are we doing? How are we getting there? Mm. Again, so eloquently stated, there's a little bit that we share in our pasts to a small degree 
that I don't think we've really discussed before it is, is I listened to your approach and your illustrations of how you interacted, how you encourage and advise others and, and how you achieved. Do I recall correctly that in a previous life you were a school teacher? Yes, 100%. Um, I, my, my background, Mike, is, is very working class. My parents never went to secondary school. They left at school by the age of 10 or 11. When they were about 17 or 18 years of age, they emigrated to England, to London. A lot of Irish people, as you know, emigrated to your country, to America, and they, they built good lives there. And, and that's one of the reasons why we have so much respect for, for America. And there's such a strong bond between Ireland and your country. But uh, they met in an Irish dance hall, got married, came back to Ireland. And my parents just wanted us two things. Education was not something they knew much about. They wanted us to have two things. One, work hard. Number two, integrity. Or number one, integrity. Number two, work hard. So I ended up going to college, did business, and I got a job as a, a trainee accountant with KPMG, a pretty large accountancy firm. And I actually left that now in teaching, and I loved teaching. So while I was teaching, I anything I ever did, I wanted to give it my best shot. Doesn't mean I'd succeed, but I can say to myself, "Look, I left everything on the on the playing field." So um, I kind of realized pretty quickly, Mike, that my role was not to teach. Teaching is not the way to, it's the wrong term. Now, I was, I used to start teaching now, teaching uh, kids, probably high school, between 12 and 18 years of age, in high school in the US. And I decided to change my tact altogether. My role was to facilitate learning, which is totally different. Teaching, you're instructing. Facilitating learning, you're creating the environment within where young people, kids and teenagers can actually go to the well with a bucket and fill it up with knowledge and intelligence. So that's what I did. And I, I love that. And then I took a career break from teaching. So I'm, I'm also a lawyer. So I had a law practice and I set up a music school and I, I did a whole lot of other crazy things. So I did. And uh, don't ask me why. I just said, look, at, let's go for it. You know, let's, let's, jump outside our comfort zone. Don't know where we're going to land, but we'll never find out unless we take that jump and challenge ourselves and see what happens. So yeah, I I, I was a teacher. I, I loved teaching, uh, but I, I really was facilitating learning. I'm also a bit involved in universities now. I'm adjunct professor of entrepreneurship in the local university here. So, But I'm not, not that involved. Uh, I was full-time involved in teaching. There's in all those things that you said, there is a common thread of serving others, of making others better. Every place you've been, everyone you've worked with, everything you've touched, it was never about you anyway. No, no matter how much you had invested or how much you committed or how much time you spent, that theme continues to carry through every single one of those examples. I just started a music school. Yeah, I, I taught a little bit. It's it's all, that theme is carrying through each and every level. I am curious, especially with where you're at now with your career and how you continue to serve and, and support others. When you are looking for characteristics in people, whether it's to partner with or invest in or support or work with, 
what characteristics are you typically observing for when you initially meet someone to determine if that's somebody who fits the mold for you and your belief system? That's another really, really good question. And it's in a way, if Tommy Sensor is kind of a tough question. So it is because the way we got connected, first of all, day one, you might remember, uh, I, how would I put it? I backed jockeys that certainly were not in the same race as I was in. They had different agendas. And I got connected through you to a mutual colleague uh, in Chicago uh, who's in YPO as, as I am, and I've been very active in it. And we met in Chicago, and uh, I invited you to come to Ireland to do a, a, a workshop called Hidden Truth. And that was as much of that more for my own exploration. And when I contacted YPO, I had maybe 30 or 40 or 50 replies saying, same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me. And we didn't see it coming. So I decided to start, this is something that happens to almost everybody, if not everybody, at some stage in their life. There's a really good book called Snakes and Suits. You know it. And I, I had to read it about three times before I could really get it. And uh, I did. But something that's really important is how you assess people in relation to your relationship with them and how you're going to actually go and do it. So for me, a lot of it's got to do with the hard knocks and learning the tough way and the tough side of the street, the program you introduced us to was very, very powerful from that point of view. Because you actually started connecting things I never really thought of. You connected uh, facial expression with verbal expression and sometimes facial expression with non-verbal expression. And there are some videos you showed that still highlight for me. I won't mention them now for political reasons, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. I mean, uh, I mean. You do. So that's helped me on my journey. And probably the most important thing I probably can say to anybody and everybody is really, 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 really be careful about who you allow into your secure base. Be really careful because what you think you're getting may not be what you end up actually getting. So it's it's really, really important. What I do, I meet the individuals. Uh, I try and meet them informally if I can on a number of occasions. Uh, if I can, I try and meet their partner or their spouse. I, I would genuinely talk to other people about them, you know, so people I trust. Do you know this person, this person, this person? If they're coming into my employment, I would... Uh, give them a kind of a probationary contract to see how they do. Now, people usually do really well in probation because they're looking for a longer-term job. The other thing I do, which I didn't do in the past, I kind of look for little nuggets of things that are happening, little droppings that happen. And I'll say, look, at, is there a connection here? Is there, am I getting all of the information that I need to guess? When I guess when I should get it, is there information missing? So I kind of double check. People have to do a little bit more work to get my full trust now than what they used to in the past. But I must say that's really, really, really important. I still make mistakes at it, 
but it's all really, really important. But the, I think the only way you'll get really good at that is actually to practice and being blunt about a professional help, the help that you gave me and 40-odd other YPRs in Dublin on two separate programs you gave us from Africa to Europe to Ireland to the U.S. I think that's really important. Well, I certainly appreciate the mention. And what, what I love in hearing about that is what I would selfishly refer to is the investigative mindset. So you're looking for trends, you're looking for the little nuggets, that hidden value. What are some pieces, what are some instances that other people might ignore? Because it's not necessarily check the box. Like It's in between Mm. those boxes. And with that, you're building your picture and then going out for further information, verify, watch it over time. So now you're making decisions based on trends and observations as opposed to gut feelings or singular events. A hundred percent. And the big thing there is we often make a decision based on maybe a 40, 45-minute interview. We make decisions based on a point in time. And that's the worst time, worst case to make a decision. A decision, as you rightly say, in my view, is a process, particularly a decision about an individual or individual's getting close to your business or getting close to your life. It's a process. And and you kind of one of the questions I often ask is this person walking their talk. In other words, are they really doing what they're saying they're doing? And why are they saying that they're doing this? Or is that for an alternative agenda? Is that for my purposes? Or is it because of the business? So yeah, I think that to me, and based on people I've spoken to, YPO and others, it's probably the single biggest reason why mistakes happen that hurt you in life. Like a number of years ago, I was Cranfield University in England with the London Stock Exchange. Every year, every two years, they actually look at what are the greatest risks businesses have. And they have a one or a two-day workshop on that. And believe it or not, this is probably about eight or nine years ago or more. They had a full-day workshop on exactly what we're talking about. So that, because they feel that from a public company point of view, there are people who get involved and work their way up to a very, very high level in it. And that actually caused significant issues that actually damaged the company, damaged the integrity of the company, damaged the corporate governance of the company damaged the the ability of internal audit and internal risk. It's skewed. It's the waters are colored or are are tainted. So there, so you cannot see down through the water to the bottom of the pond. And uh, it's a huge, it's just not me saying that. So I'm telling you about London Stock Exchange doing this. Uh, And the research, unfortunately, is clear that often, I shouldn't say often, it's not uncommon for people, the most successful people in business as they rise the ranks to have narcissistic or sociopathic or psychopathic traits that allow them to do that. And that's not all necessarily bad. There can be a range where that can still be productive. But to your point where that starts to fall outside of that range, it becomes seriously damaging. And there's a a behavioral uh, research scientist here in the United States. His name's Tim Levine. He's, He's become a friend of mine as well. A line that I've taken from him 
is we should beware of the charismatic extroverts. Not because they're bad people, they could be great people. But to your point, what happens is we can become so swept up with their charisma and their extroversion that we don't look out for the pattern. We don't do the follow-up work. We don't ask the deeper questions. And by the time we realize they haven't been giving us the information that we need, they haven't been forthright, it's too late. They've been trading on their ability to talk. We've been just sort of accepting that. And now there might not have been any real malice, but at this point it is too late. They weren't doing their job. We weren't doing our due diligence along the way. And now there's a real problem. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And everybody knows the time to deal with a problem is to nip it in the bud. Get it early. Don't allow it to fester. You know? And sometimes you rightly say, those people think they're doing the best for the company. They really, really do. They believe that the way they're doing it is the right way to go and, and the company would benefit from it and everyone else is wrong and I know what I'm doing and all of that type of a thing. So, but yeah, absolutely. So important to learn about that, train yourself up on that, and actually just to have eyes in the back of your head, just to take your time to assess. What you just said, take your time. Take your time. All too often, people rush to make decisions that don't need to be rushed. It's Mm -hmm. an arbitrary time frame. It's a self-imposed stress relief to rush to make that decision where if they let the situation come to them a little bit longer, got a little bit deeper, now they would be able to make a more informed decision under a clearer frame of mind that would likely yield better results. So I know it was kind of a casual add-on to, to finish what you were saying, but it's an extremely important point. Mm. Another thing I think that's really important, um, and we spoke about mentoring and athletes and, and, and business people uh, earlier, Um your frame of mind when you're making a decision. That's hugely important. If you're stressed when you're making a decision, there's a greater chance, and there's, there's evidence based on this as well, that means you're going to maybe make not necessarily the best decision you can make at that particular time. So it's so important to look after yourself first, to make sure you're clear mind, to make sure you're getting the information from the people who actually can give you the good information. And, and I, I heard once, there's a big difference between information and knowledge. Huge difference. We, have, we never had as much information in the world. Knowledge is different. To me, knowledge is knowing what information to look for, and how to use it for your particular needs. So it's very much human-based. It's the top six inches in relation to how you use it. So you can have all the information in the world, but if you cannot put that into knowledge, it's really, really, really difficult to make the right decision, the best decisions you can at any particular time. It's a great point. You've mentioned YPO several times. It's it's how we were connected. And by the way, if I recall correctly, the first time we met outside of Chicago, I believe you were the one doing the interrogating of me as you were trying to determine if this was something you wanted to move forward with or not. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how that went down, if I recall correctly. Well, look at, well, you tell all of those 
find people who are watching and listening to this, this conversation, and none of it is scripted. It's off the call. Uh, so it is. Can you remember where we met? We did. We met in a pub. Um, I, somebody in your family, was it a nephew? Was it your nephew that owned the pub? I'm trying no, to. No, a cousin of mine. Cousin. And was it in Brookfield, Illinois? I don't remember. That's right. Which... Brookfield, Illinois. Yeah. Yes. Beside, uh, not far from Brookfield Zoo. And yes. we met, we met in, a, in an Irish pub. We were not drinking Guinness, I don't think. We were in the middle of the day. We had tea or coffee or maybe a sandwich or something. And we sat down for a couple of hours and, quite frankly, uh, blew me away. Blew me away for a couple of things. One was, you're a very down-to-earth person. Very, very, very down-to-earth. There's no airs and, and graces or anything like that. I like that. That's important. In other words, you don't put up shields along the way. And, and what you see is what you get. The other thing was, and go back to what I said earlier, uh, I could straight away see a bond of integrity there, uh, an openness and, and a sense of real integrity. And I was, I was, I was asking myself, because I, I obviously had never met before. I, I didn't know you. Um, I knew a very little bit about your background, but I knew nothing about the science that you were bringing to the table. I knew what I wanted to achieve, but I didn't. I, I, I was trying to join the dots. And pretty quickly in the conversation, I could say, wow, this is really, really interesting. And do you remember um, on the first evening when we all got together in Dublin for the, for the workshop that you led and created? I brought in this guy who's a magician. And the reason I got the magician, in, and he walked around the room where we were all having coffees and teas and just a general get-together before the program started. And he had playing cards and other things. The reason I brought in in is what you see sometimes is not what you get. So I thought the magician was a great segue into our two-and-a-half or three-day three day program to actually to look behind the card tricks or... What you see is not necessarily what you get. So take your time and, and, and look into that. But it all came. Lots of, there's a lot of damage in Irish pubs around the world, and this is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've contributed to that damage in Irish pubs. <laughs> I mean damage in a good way. I don't mean it. Yeah, for it sure, for sure. And in Dublin in particular, I've only been there a few times, but managed to find my That's way right. across town on yeah. uh, each of the yeah. opportunities I've had to be there. In fact, when we were together, I made my friends very jealous when they found out that we had our dinner events at the Guinness storehouse each night. So we basically had unfettered access to all the Guinness we could handle. And my only regret was I had to teach the next day. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the biggest mistake I made is that I invited everybody to get in the store house on the first night. So they all wanted to go back a second and a third night. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but we were going back on the bus from Guinness store house to uh, the Radisson Hotel in Stillorgan, which is probably about a 20, 25 minute drive or so uh, at night. And somebody said, oh, I want to go to a nightclub. And there was a friend of ours who had the most famous nightclub in Dublin. And rang him up. He says, come on, guys, come on in, come on in. I'll give you a room to yourselves and so on and so forth. So uh, <laughs> that was the kind of, how I put it, an unintended consequence to the Guinness and the Guinness storehouse. 
But um, no, it was, it was really good. It was very, very enjoyable. And um, uh, it's a great learning experience for me and, and for others. And hence, we invited you back the second year because we had other people who wanted to come and to do the program uh, the second year, which we did. My good friend of mine, Tom Brennan, led that program. Yeah. And to, to give that story a little bit of extra flavor, I happen to be sitting next to the gentleman, the crew from Nairobi, that were trying to yeah. orchestrate the nightclub experience. That's so right. Tom, Tom was the one that made the call. And right. literally, from we we're sitting in the back of the bus, literally yelled up to the driver and told the driver to turn around. <laughs> the driver turns the bus around and goes back into Dublin. And as the bus pulls up up in front of this place, in my younger days, I might have said a little bit later than I should have when I had to teach the next day. But literally, Hasit had his hands on my shoulders and he was saying, Mike, you must come with us. You must come with us. And finally, he wouldn't take no for an answer. So finally, I looked at him and said, I've seen how this movie ends. <laughs> and they went and had a great time. And of course, the next morning when we started, those same five or six guys showed up a little bit late. Yeah. <laughs> That was an amazing group. And there's still people from that group that I keep in touch with today. Salt was awesome the very next year. Uh, so yeah, it that was really an amazing group and an amazing experience all the way around. And for people that may not be aware, YPO is the Young Presidents Organization. And it's this global group of CEOs that don't just find themselves at the Guinness Storehouse, but really have many different forums to support each other and events for education. And it goes much deeper in, into what I could briefly illustrate. But as our time begins to click towards what you put aside for me, which I appreciate, I would like to ask, as somebody like yourself who has been in the room with so many other CEOs, whether it was with EY or whether it's all the work you've done, really being a leader within YPO, what have you really gained and I, I'm sure there's there's a greater answer, but if you could share kind of a few top takeaways, what have you really gained by setting aside the time to listen and learn from so many other people's experiences? I've learned almost everything. Um, I have one is when I was, I used to be a judge to pick the best entrepreneur in the world for a couple of years running. And so I would have met some of the finest businesses in the world and, and met those entrepreneurs. And I used to chair the judging panel for the EY Ireland Entrepreneur of the Year for six or seven years. So I, I would have seen a lot of businesses. And Mike, I've never seen a company grow in my life. Companies do not grow. People grow. So what, what I've learned is actually you create the environment to allow your people to grow. As I said earlier, it starts off with your culture, but it very quickly flows across and it's their culture. They own the culture. They want to be part of this train or this airplane that's actually moving forward, making direction. They want to see they're, they're emotionally connected with it. That's probably the biggest thing. People grow, companies don't grow. The next thing is it's, when I was starting out my entrepreneurship journey, it was very much a silo scenario. And, and a lot of people, I think, can be can connect with this. When you start off a business, you're kind of, you're very much on your own. So you are. And I'd my finger in the air and see what direction the wind is blowing today. What should I do? What should I not do? 
And it just stressed the hell out of me because I, I wasn't sure was I making the right decision and I didn't have much money. So I, I had very little leeway to make mistakes because any mistake is seriously financially expensive and one could flip one way or the other because of it. But the fact that I could actually talk to people, particularly outside of my wife and family, because all I was doing was bringing the stress home on them. I realized that after a while. So when you could talk to other people who've had similar experiences and you could talk to other people and say, look, this is what I'm facing now. What? Do you have any advice or did you experience anything like that? Or would you know somebody who's really strong on social media marketing because I don't think I'm getting value from where I'm at here or how I can do this. When you get that collective feedback, it's absolutely incredible to actually help you make better decisions more frequently. So it's back to the interaction of people growing, not businesses, and the learning you get from them. There's a reason with two years or one month. Really, really, really important. And... uh, YPO, there's about 36,000 members worldwide, but uh, uh, it's there's very strong integrity there overall, uh, quite frankly. So you're you're kind of you're you're inside you're 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 inside the fence, as it were, to some degree. So you you you've already kind of established because people are in YPO an element of trust and, and belief and confidence in there, so you can actually go on and do things. Um, they're the main things, quite frankly. Um, like white viewers, and we all make, make some mistakes, make lots of mistakes. That's natural. Also, an understanding for me. I spent some time actually with the Dalai Lama, which was uh, really, really, really interesting. And I, I probably two learnings from that. This is actually going maybe sideways a bit, Mike. If that's okay, please. One, one is. Keep your life as simple as you possibly can. Do not complicate it. And if there's something coming in that kind of complicates it, move it out of your secure base and keep it as simple as you can. Because if you keep it simple, it means you can you make less mistakes. The next thing is do not be too hard on yourself. We are, as human beings, we're really hard on ourselves. We're, we're much tougher on ourselves. And we give ourselves a worse time than we do to our our pits, for example. We treat our pits better very often. So take care of yourself. Mind yourself. Look after yourself as an individual from your your health and fitness and what you eat and sleep and who you spend time with and so on. That's really, really important also. And probably the third thing, which is connected with the first two, is, you know, Life is not a bit of roses. Every single one of us go through challenges, small challenges, big challenges, so on. That's the way life is. That's the way it's structured. So it's not happy-go-lucky for all of us. And just because if somebody has a beautiful car, well, more power to them, doesn't mean you need to get a big, big, big car because you live your life, you know, Happiness and success are totally different. We feel that the more successful you are, the happier you're going to be. In my life on this earth, it's not necessarily that. Happiness is more got to do with your purpose in life and who you take the journey with in life. 
success is in, oh, I passed this exam, I passed that exam. If I get a university degree, I'll be successful. And we associate success with happiness. If I get a big car, I know some of the most wealthiest people in the world. And quite frankly, they're struggling to find happiness. They're very successful. They're struggling to find happiness. So happiness does not equate purely with monetary. Happiness is more between your ears rather than what's in your back pocket. So that's, that, that would be some of them, or most of them, particularly in my conversations and time with the Dalai Lama. What was it like sitting down and having a conversation with the Dalai Lama? Uh, I'll see if I can get something here. If I can, Grace. Now, this is also unrehearsed because we haven't, uh, we haven't talked about this at all. And uh, I don't be even aware that I met the Dalai Lama. Um, it was absolutely... Uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. Um, so it was. Uh, it was. It was in Northern Ireland, in Derry. There's a uh, there's a charity there that I support, and uh, the Dalai Lama's patron to that charity. And uh, the uh, I don't know if you can see this. Oh yes, there it is. We have evidence. That's me with. The man himself. Uh, but the Dalai Lama's patron to the charity. This is a guy, a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, and actually, I think your your viewers and listeners would maybe love to hear him. Um, when he was 10 years of age, he was walking home from school and a British Army officer came across the street and blew his face open with a plastic bullet. So Richard Moore is blind. He was blind since he was 10 years of age. He's married with two grown-up daughters. Uh, one of them got married a couple of years ago. He walked her up the aisle. He's never seen her, never seen his wife. And a number of years ago, he wanted to he wanted to find out, get the name of the British Army officer who blinded him. So he eventually, and you can imagine, that keep those things quite behind closed doors. Richard eventually found out and made contact with this guy's name is Charles. I, I'd met him as well and his wife. And Richard went over to the UK to meet him. And they met in a hotel foyer, and he asked Richard, why did you want to meet me? Why did you go to such pains to meet me? And Richard said, well, because if you've got any remorse about blinding a, a child, I want to tell you that don't be remorseful. Do not be upset. I don't want you to be carrying that on your back or on your, on your shoulder. And I want you to meet you before either you or I pass away, and I want to share that with you. And he asked Richard if Richard would do him a favor, a big favor, and he said, I, Richard, he said, look, I understand if you wouldn't do it. Richard said, what is it? He said, would you give the eulogy on my grave? And Richard said, I'd be honored to do so. And uh, Richard has a charity called Children in Crossfire, helping kids who are caught in Crossfire. Now, he has developed that, and on any given day, he could be teaching up to 100,000 young African girls because in Africa, girls don't have, young girls don't have the same opportunities in education as young boys, so between age five and 10 years of age. And Richard said, I would never be able to help those, all those people if I wasn't blinded. I, I, I would have done something else. I wouldn't have gone into children and crossfire. I wouldn't have done all those type of things. An absolutely amazing guy. And Richard talks about forgiveness. And forgiveness 
is a gift you give yourself, not somebody else. So there are people who hurt me. I'm sure Mike hurt you, hurt everybody in life. And it's hard to just rub it off. It's really, really hard to say, I forgive that person. But forgiveness is a gift you give yourself, not them. They don't know whether you give to forgive them or not. But if you don't, you're like, mentally, you're in a prison. And the worst prison you could be in, there was a, a first cousin of my father's, a Jesuit priest, and he was in a prison in China for about three years in solitary confinement. And I remember him coming home and giving Mass. I was only about probably 10 or 11 years of age in a church in Connemara, not far from the airport you flew transatlantic in to the Aran Islands. And he, uh, I remember, I'll never forget him saying, he says, I was physically in a prison, but mentally I would get up in the morning, the 10, 10 foot by 8 foot room he was in solitary confinement in, and he would walk around that room and he would imagine that he was in Ireland, meeting his friends, having a cup of tea or coffee, having a lunch, walking up the country roads at different times of the year. So he said, the worst prison you could be in is a mental prison, not a physical prison. And that's up to ourselves to make sure we're not in a mental prison. And, and, and Richard has done that. He can, he can see, but not like me or you or anybody here watching. He can see totally differently. And he's got an amazing imagination. He wrote a book called, Can I Give Him My Eyes? And he gave me, actually, Danny Lama gave me his book as well and signed it, but that's a different matter. But he said, can I, and I asked Richard, where did you, where did you get that name from? I knew that. Well, Richard says, when I was in hospital and he had pads on his eyes and he thought, he thought he could see once the pads were taken off. And he heard his father, he called his father his daddy, his father speaking at the edge of the bed with the surgeon, the, the doctor who operated on him. And they thought Richard was asleep. So Richard's father asked the surgeon if he could give his son his own eyes. And obviously he couldn't do that then or now. Uh, that I'm aware of. So uh, that's when Richard dawned on Richard, first of all, that he'll never see again, that he's blind for life. And those things, meeting people like that, the impact people like that can have on me and you and all of us is can be transformative. And that's where life and the world becomes three-dimensional, 3D, rather than just 2D. Or that you're just living, trudging from day to day to day to day. Go out there and explore and see. And go up in your balloon and you don't know where it's going to land. You don't even know which way the wind is going to bring it. But go there. Go up in that balloon. Because you will land someplace. And so be it if you land in the sea. You'll be fine. You'll be okay. So that's me at the Dalai Lama. Oh, I think that is the perfect story to, to wrap this conversation up on. I certainly don't want to do anything to take the power away from that. Again, Porg, I can't thank you enough. Like I said, the impact that you've had now, hopefully on the listeners, certainly on myself. I can't wait to find a time where I can make it back to Ireland and we can see each other again. Hopefully introduce you to my son this time. Which I'd love to, but one thing, one thing, we're not going to the nightclub. No, no, no nightclub. Oh, no nightclub. No nightclub. No okay. nightclub. Okay. Maybe a pub if you have the time. That's okay. We'll do that. 
but no nightclub. Yeah, yeah. My nightclub. You're gonna come to Ireland. You're gonna come to Ireland unless you come to a bar. No, no. And if the opportunity presented itself, I don't know if you spend more time on the East Coast or West Coast these days, but I would love to find the opportunity to actually go to a pub in Connemara with you if there is oh, a yeah. way for us to to open that up. Uh, I think that would be that'd be pretty special. I still have the Bodrin you had made for us hanging in my office. Wow. And I, and I still proudly wear the cufflinks that you had made for me That's in Connemara. Right. That's right. Uh, okay. When yeah. I give presentations. So uh, thank you. I'd love to be able to come back and, and see some more of that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, I know now you, know, you do a lot of work with individuals and organizations in an advising and co- coaching standpoint. If somebody was in that situation and was looking to find out more about you, where might a good place be for people to look to find out more about Porg if they're interested? Uh, well, probably they do a Google search. Okay. Only believe 10% of what's written there. And you can choose. <laughs> um, I don't really... I actually don't do mentoring on a professional basis. People just come to me and I, if I can help them, I will, if they think I can help them. So I don't have any, any formal structure there as such. Uh, I'd like to follow your footsteps in a couple of ways. And one of them would be to write a book because there's just a lot underneath that gray hair that I just love to get out there that I think a point you made, which I, I really hadn't thought about when you until you mentioned it. You said if you look at you joining the dots poric, it's all about making a difference to people's lives. And I think if I try to write a book that hopefully it might help one or two, or even if it only helps one person, it's well worth it. Well, I whatever I can do to peer pressure you to try to do that, <laughs> okay. I would love. I would love to read it so you can put me on the list to buy the first single copy. Um, I will absolutely share the link. You mentioned George Kohlreiser. We talked about him previously. I will share That's the links to his book. I will see if I can find, if there is a link for, I'm looking at the notes I took, um, that can, can I give him my eyes? If there's a link to that book anywhere, I'll make yeah, sure. Yeah, if you look at Children in Crossbar. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll add links to all of that in the show notes. So if people are interested Brilliant. in this and they want to learn more, they can certainly look it up and, and find those resources as well. Um, exactly. But I, I cannot say thank you enough. It is so fantastic to see you. Thank you for sharing your time. And I'm really excited to hopefully catch up with you again very soon. Absolutely. And for me, the big privilege is a really, really good friend. I value that. That means more than anything. And I hope every, all of the listeners and all of the viewers, the best I can wish you all, ladies and gentlemen, is have really, really good friends in life who you journey with. So, Mike, we leave that. Thank you again so much. Thank you. And God bless you. Porik, once again, thank you so much for connecting all the way from Ireland in the evening to take your time and have that conversation with. I can't thank you enough. Your wisdom, your perspective, everything you learned and shared is so valuable. And thank you for having the impact on the world that you have every single day. Hopefully everybody got amazing takeaways from that conversation, whether it is updating or evolving your leadership style to how you think, how you observe for others, how you give credit, recognition, So much going on there. It's Padraig. Thank you so much.
Of course, on the way out, let's thank our sponsors one more time. Humantel, please head over to humantel.com and enter the code INCLUSIVE25 for industry-leading training on how to accurately understand what people are likely thinking and feeling when you recognize their facial expressions and nonverbal behavior change. Head over there for 25% off all of their training. It is worth the time and the investment. Please check out emotionalintelligencemagazine.com as well, ei-magazine.com for their ever-growing library of emotional intelligence-related content, books, articles, podcasts, interviews, education events, and beyond. Check them out. And yes, please, for the professional interviewers, head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. That group is consistently providing elite training events, updated interviewing resources, legal updates, constantly changing their member benefits, providing for interaction and communication between members. And that doesn't even talk about or begin to reference taking care of the certified forensic interviewer designation process and all that's involved with that. So please, if you're an interviewer that's looking to either attain or maintain your elite designation, head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. Thank you all for being here. Please do all the things that algorithms ask us to do. Like, subscribe, share, tell your friends about it. Please let us know. What have you liked? What have you learned? What have you applied? What haven't you liked? Would you like to see more of? Also, please, if you know anybody that might be a great guest, send them our way. Make the introduction so we can get them on the show and share their perspective with the world as well. Once again, thank you for spending your time with us. I truly appreciate it. Please stay safe. Take care of each other. We'll see you next time.